You guys may be seated, and those of you who have children, you may uh, take them uh, to our children's ministry. For those of you who are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through uh, first grade, and, uh, and so you are more than welcome to, to use that. For those of you that um, whose children are staying in the service, we love having kids in the service. We don't mind uh, the noise at all, and we want them to uh, be conformed more into the image of Christ uh, by gathering with us as well. And again, we have the worship uh, guides, uh, kind of the kids' version of that available uh, to them as well. Uh, Over the last few months, we've been going through uh, our confession of faith, which uh, summarizes for us uh, the scriptures, and we have been looking in chapter 3 over these last six weeks or so as it relates to God's uh, decree, and this morning I wanted to read paragraph 6 to you uh, of chapter 3. It says, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by his eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means there unto. Wherefore, they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ and are effectually called into faith in Christ by His Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. And so that is paragraph 6 of chapter 3 of our confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are finishing out Mark chapter 2 this morning. So we're looking at verses 23 to verse uh, 28, verse 23 to verse 28, and we are, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at controversies, uh, or uh, two two different controversies uh, surrounding um, the Sabbath, okay, and so that is... Uh, where we are this morning, and just again by way of reminder, the Gospel of Mark, believed to be the earliest of the Gospels, really a source gospel for both Matthew and for Luke as well, written by John Mark, who um, was uh, spent a lot of time with the Apostle Peter, um, historians, scholars, uh, there seems to be even a, a consensus in um, early church history, we're talking church father era, if you will, uh, that that these were called Peter's memoirs, and you can certainly see some overlap between the sermons, the ministry of the Apostle Peter, and and some of the things that uh, Mark says that he records in his gospel. But this morning we are in uh, chapter 2 of the gospel of Mark, and so allow me to read, and and just by way of reminder, um, uh, many of uh, the things that we're covering in the gospel of Mark, you can see them in Matthew and Luke as well, and so we see Matthew chapter 12, uh, this same account happen. If you want to go and read that for yourself, we also see this in Luke uh, chapter 6. But allow me to read this, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will jump right in. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields, speaking of Christ, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, said to Christ, Look, why do they do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, 
the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. Verse 27, And he, Christ, said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man, which we see is a title that Mark has kind of, he introduced us to Son of Man pretty early on. The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. And God, um, our prayer is what we just sang about, that you would speak through your word that's living and active. Your Holy Spirit inspired it, has preserved it, and can use it, God, to shape us and fashion us into who you want us to be, God, which is you want us to be conformed as a result of being here this morning, conform more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that very thing. Grant us humility, understanding, soften our hearts to those things which matter, these eternal things, God. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. So this is um, <clears throat> the the fourth uh, controversy that, that we see recorded in the Gospel of Mark between Jesus and the religious leaders, namely the, the Pharisees. And, and we're going to look at another controversy, like I said a moment ago, we'll, we'll look at another controversy next week in chapter 3 as it relates to the Sabbath. And, and these controversies are leading, going to culminate, as we'll see next week, uh, in a plan uh, that the religious leaders hatch, uh, uh, this plot to uh, kill the Son of God, to kill Jesus, to kill the Messiah. Okay, But we have as our setting this morning Christ and his disciples walking through fields of grain, either on their way to the synagogue for worship, right? Saturday, it's the Sabbath at this, in this setting here. So they're either going to the synagogue for worship or they're on their way uh, to perhaps do ministry. And, and as they travel, it's evident that the disciples are hungry. And their hunger is of such that they begin to eat grain from this field that they're passing through. And, and this, according to the law of Moses, it's, it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 24 and 25 say this, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain... You may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So very specific about what it is that the disciples of Jesus were doing according to the law of Moses, right? But the law of Moses is saying essentially take what you need. Don't go hungry, but also don't store up things, right? Don't use the sickle. Don't store it up because that would be stealing. So we see the law of Moses make a provision for what the disciples were doing and what perhaps even Jesus himself was doing. But the conflict arises because this is being done on the Sabbath. Okay, the, the Pharisees, their ill will, right, and, and ill will always assumes the worst, right, and wants to prove the worst when someone has ill will against you. But the Pharisees, with their ill will, they look at what the disciples were doing and they attempt, like we've seen them do already, they attempt to delegitimize Christ, both his person and his very ministry. Okay, so, so that, that's the immediate context of our passage this morning. But before we go further into the conflict that we see, we need to do some 
preliminary work. We need to do more contextual work to ensure that the, the scriptures, that the word of God are informing our beliefs about what the Sabbath is and, and how it even relates to us. And so if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. It's also in your takeaways in your worship guide as well. But we need to see that the Sabbath is a creation mandate. The Sabbath is a creation mandate. Okay, after God created the world, he instituted the Sabbath. Right? This means that there is a permanence to the Sabbath. It's the divine order, if you will, of the universe. Labor six days and rest one day. Rest on the Sabbath. In the same way that God created man, male and female, and that's an unchangeable reality grounded in creation. And just as marriage is between one man and one woman in this complementary one flesh union, just as that is grounded in creation, so too is the Sabbath grounded in creation. It's a creation ordinance. Again, a creation mandate. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it, which means he made it other. He made it different. He set it apart. He made it holy. Okay, God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because in it he rested from all of his work which God had created and made. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Right, so God set apart the Sabbath as a holy day of rest. And get this, he did that before the fall of man. Okay, he did that before the fall of man, before the disobedience of Adam. And God, and we know this, and certainly would confess this as a church, God didn't rest because he needed to rest. He didn't rest because he was tired from creating everything. He rested, he ceased from his work on the Sabbath to establish for us, his creatures, a pattern of work and rest. Work and rest. And, and think about this for a moment. If we needed rest prior to the fall, okay, if we needed rest prior to the curse impacting our labors and causing what the book of Genesis says, thorns and thistles, right? Or sicknesses and death and disease and suffering, how much more do we need this rhythm of rest even now? How much more do we need it? How much more should this Sabbath be viewed not as cumbersome? as many of us perhaps view it, but as a gift from our Creator, as a gift from our Maker. Okay, so we, we see that the Sabbath is, is a creation mandate. It's grounded in creation. It's pre-fall. The very arguments that we would use to, to argue rightfully for marriage being between one man and one woman, and the arguments that we would use for God created man, male and female, he created them. We're grounding it in God's design. It's the same argumentation for the Sabbath as well, which means for us that the origin, the origin of the, the Sabbath, it's not in the Ten Commandments. It's not the origin. It's not the beginning of the Sabbath. In fact, none of God's moral law finds its origin in the Ten Commandments. None of it. Right? God's moral law is summarized by Moses in the Ten Commandments, but it was not created 
at Mount Sinai. And there's ample evidence of God's moral law prior to Exodus chapter 20 where we find the Ten Commandments, right? Adam was to keep a law before the Lord that would lead to eternal life. It would lead to a garden without the serpent, right? But he broke it. Cain knew that it would be immoral to murder his brother Abel. Right? Abraham knew that lying about Sarah being a sister instead of his wife was faithless. Right? And we could look at example after example after example of this, but the reason that it's important for us to note is because even as we read of the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, we must read that commandment and, and see that the, the command to observe it, it didn't originate there. It didn't start again at Mount Sinai. But let's, let's read of it there in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. And again, this is all preliminary work for us to approach our passage and mark rightly with the right mindset. But starting with verse 8, going down to verse 11, this is what we call the fourth commandment here, okay? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who's within your gates. For in six days, right, and pay attention to this, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, made it holy, set it apart. And right, again, we, we see the Sabbath is instituted as a day of rest, both physical rest and by God's grace, spiritual rest in the Lord. In the Lord. And in verse 11 of that Exodus passage, Moses grounds, and reminds the, the, the Israelites, he grounds this commandment in the creation mandate. He points back to what we just looked at in the book of Genesis. Now, th this is enough for us to see that the fourth commandment is, is a binding commandment. It's a binding commandment. But we also see the Sabbath reaffirmed by Jesus in our very text. Mark 2, verse 28. The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. One theologian comments about this statement this way. He says, In what sense is the Son of Man Lord of the Sabbath? Not surely to abolish it. That surely would be a strange lordship, especially just after saying that it was made or instituted for man. Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, get this, to own it, to interpret it, to preside over it, and to give greater dignity to it by merging it, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, by merging it in the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10, breathing into it an air of liberty and love necessarily unknown before and thus making it the nearest resemblance to the to eternal sabbatism, to this eternal Sabbath that we're headed for when God in Christ makes everything ultimately new. Now, I'll comment on this more in just a few minutes, but it, it's important for us to, to harmonize the passages that we're looking at this morning. Okay, we, we see Jesus also affirm all of the Ten Commandments, right? It, and it's not that Jesus... Ha something doesn't have to be repeated in the New Testament for it to be ever uh, eternally true. There's more continuity between the Old and the New Testaments than oftentimes we, we think. 
All right, we should believe something unless it is, uh, just as the ceremonial law, it's clear from the New Testament that it was abolished, and just as the civil law, because of the theocracy of Israel, just as that has been, aside from the, the moral imperatives that we could tie to the Ten Commandments in the New Testament abolished, but we shouldn't have to say, well, the New Testament needs to restate what the Old Testament says in order for us to believe it. Right? We, that, that's a wrong way of reading the, the Scriptures. But we see Jesus even reassert the Ten Commandments and summarize them in and again, we have looked at this before, but Jesus said to him, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So what, what do we see there, right? The first four commandments summarized by Christ, right? What the Reformers would have called the first table of the law. And then we see the back six commandments, and it says, The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we see first table, first four commandments, which include the Sabbath, back six commandments as it relates to our relationship with one another. Again, we've looked at that before. Right? Now, you may be thinking to yourself, that that's, all, that's all well and good, but we rest physically and spiritually on Sunday, not on Saturday, which was the original Sabbath. So, a good question to ask, are we breaking the Sabbath? It's a legitimate question for us to ask, right? And certainly we see some ceremonial aspects in the, in the Sabbath. The theologian I quoted a moment ago mentioned this, but Christians normatively, unless there's extenuating circumstances, Christians normally observe the Sabbath on Sunday, which we refer to as the Christian Sabbath, or we refer to as the Lord's Day. And this has been the case since the resurrection of Jesus, which was on what day? It was on Sunday, right? It was on Sunday. And we see this continuity between the two, the Saturday Sabbath and the Sunday Sabbath, right? God rested from creating all things and established for us an eternal pattern. We now rest in light of God and Christ making us a new creation in his life and death and resurrection, right? And, and so now we have even a pattern set for us, not just uh, us celebrating the, the newness of the new covenant by honoring the Sabbath, the fourth commandment by uh, Sunday, but we're also looking forward to the day when God in Christ will make all things new. And we see this commitment to observing the Sabbath on the Lord's Day in the early church, and we see it in uh, church history as well. We see a gathering, for instance, where Paul preached in what many uh, theologians believe to be the body of Christ partaking in the Lord's Supper, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, which is what? Sunday, right? Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight, right? That's when we saw the kid fall and because he fell asleep in the midst of Paul's preaching. Now, you guys don't ever do that, but the... <clears throat> But we see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Right, we see John write about this vision... Right, happening on what he called the Lord's Day, right? a phrase that's introduced to us in the New Testament and interpreted as the Christian Sabbath. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, okay, who, and Polycarp, if you've ever heard that unfortunate name, um, 
He was a disciple of the Apostle John, okay? And he said this, on the Lord's Day, every one of us Christians keep the Sabbath, okay? So that's Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. Justin Martyr, also an early church father, said this in the year 155, but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it's the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter made the world, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. Right, we, we see the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day attested to both in the Westminster Confession of Faith and our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 22, ver, uh, paragraph 7 says this, And it is of the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by His Word in a positive and perpetual, note that, perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, right, Saturday, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, Sunday, which is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation uh, of the last day of the week being abolished. And, and there's certainly passages of Scripture that they use, that they had been interpreted to affirm this. Exodus 20, 1 Corinthians 16, Acts 20, Revelation 1.10, what we just looked at just a moment ago. So I give this background to us this morning to, to shape our thinking on this issue of the Sabbath because we live not just in a broader society, but we live even in a Christian culture that widely neglects it. And we neglect it to the detriment of our souls. We neglect it to the detriment of our souls. For instance, we, we give very little consideration to our need to regularly gather. We give very little consideration to that, even within Christian culture. We tend to even make it a travel for a travel day for our holidays. Right? We fill it up with kids' recreational sports. We use it as a catch-up day for our household chores. We do unfinished work on this day. In other words, we burden and overcomplicate this day, this day of rest that the Lord has graciously given to us. And as a result of that, the ripple effect of that is that we are routinely absent from this day. Now, this isn't to say that urgent matters don't come up. Right? In fact, we're, we're going to talk about certain works of necessity from our text this morning, but we're routinely absent from the get when we're routinely absent from the gathering of God's church, we need to see that we're profaning the Lord's day, that we really are breaking the fourth commandment. We're not non-commandment people, right? We don't look at do not commit adultery and say, well, that's been abolished and it's not binding on us, right? We don't do that with any of the other commandments, do we? We need to see and be convicted by our own breaking of this commandment. Right? We need to see this day as, as a cherished gift from God. And we need to prioritize it in our lives. Right? There, there's a reason the second thing that we have written in our membership covenant at Deer Park pertains to Lord's Day worship. 
Right, right in our, our covenant, we, say, we commit to one another and to the Lord together, saying, I will worship with the gathered church regularly on the Lord's day. Now, this is good for us, and we're going to return to that again at the end of this morning's service. But let's go further into this conflict that we see with Jesus and the Pharisees. Look back with me, verses 23 to 26. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with them. So the second thing we need to see this morning is the Sabbath becomes a burden when we legalistically apply it. Okay, the Sabbath becomes a burden when we legalistically apply it. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't prioritize the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, in our lives. One of the reasons we don't prioritize it is because we have a pharisaical understanding of it. Treaties found in the Mishnah, which were the oral traditions of, of the Jewish religious leaders, particularly of the Pharisees, and, and these oral traditions were recorded in the second century, around the year 200-ish, if you will. And it demonstrates for us the legalistic applications of the Sabbath, much like we saw last week with legalistic applications of of fasting, potential legalistic applications of fasting. But one scholar says the Mishnah lists 39 classes of what was considered um, work that profaned the Sabbath. And it includes those we might expect, such as plowing, hunting, and buttering, and those we would not, such as tying or loosening knots, right? To tying your shoe, perhaps. Right? Sewing more than one stitch or writing, and this is arbitrary stuff, writing more than one letter. Such tediousness inevitably resulted in novel rulings. For example, it was forbidden to set a dislocated foot or hand on the Sabbath, which we'll talk a little bit about next week, or to repair a fallen roof, though it could be temporarily propped up. Right? So, so Jesus and his disciples, they actually violated two legalistic or two pharisaical understandings or teachings about the Sabbath. One was they walked too far. And that's not mentioned in our text, but they walked too far. You, you couldn't walk more than 1,999 steps. And the, the so-called reaping of grains is the second thing that they violated. Okay? And that way, which is the third thing, third violation that's listed in the Mishnah, the, the, it's a forbidden work. And, and we could ask the question, what were the Pharisees doing out there with Jesus and his disciples in the first place? Right? Did they walk too far? Right? Were they picking and choosing what it was that they were applying? Right? The answer doesn't really matter except to note what I said earlier, that this was an attempt to discredit Jesus. It was an attempt to discredit his person. It was an attempt to discredit his ministry. Right? Ill will is what's motivating these religious leaders. And the way in which Jesus argues is interesting. He argues for out of necessity, okay, and necessity and mercy are acceptable labors 
according to Scripture as it relates to the Sabbath. We're going to see mercy next week. This morning we're looking at uh, necessity. Right? The disciples were hungry, not in the way that we get hungry. Like they, There was a legitimate hunger. There was a true need here, and we can even see that by the fact that Jesus references David, which we'll look at in just a moment. But there was a true need here. However, and that true need met the provision in God's law. However, it did not meet the Pharisaical understanding of God's law, this legalistic application of it. So Jesus, he, he references King David. And the religious leaders of the day would have had an elevated view of David. Or they would have prioritized David because David, as we know, is the man after what? God's own heart. He's the man after God's own heart. And because it's from David that the Messiah would ultimately come. So there's a reverence here that these religious leaders give to David. Right? Jeremiah prophesied that the Lord would raise to David a, quote, branch of righteousness. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. So Jesus, bringing David in this conflict, into this conflict, presents an interesting dilemma for the Pharisees, for the, the religious leaders. And while Mark doesn't record this back and forth sort of debate, the Holy Spirit of God preserved what it is that we should see here. And there's two things primarily. First, we should see how magnificently Christ identifies himself with David. Okay? Jesus is in fact... What we confess as a church, he's the greater David. He's the long-awaited-for Messiah. We see in Matthew's genealogy, we see that Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We see the Canaanite woman with the demon-possessed child called Jesus the son of David in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. We see blind Bartimaeus, who we'll talk about in, several, in a few months. We see him in Mark chapter 10, verse 47. Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Paul calls Jesus a descendant of David. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. The apostle John calls him, in the book of Revelation, the root of David. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Right? Jesus, as we see regularly as we work through our text, he really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And he takes this issue about the Sabbath and he brings this out. To the Pharisees, he associates himself and what he's doing and what he's allowing with David. So we see this messianic claim here. That's the first thing that we see. And the second thing that we see is that Jesus puts, put, he puts these Pharisees in a position to either have to let their criticism of him and his disciples go or risk criticizing David. Risk criticizing the man after God's own heart, as settled by Old Testament Scripture. Right? How could the Pharisees ever criticize David? Right? Jesus complicates things for them. He complicates their burdensome rules that they put on people, their legalistic applications of the law. Right? He speaks of David, who was not a priest, eating of the showbread on the Sabbath. Now what is showbread? Right? Showbread is the bread of presence. And now you say, well that doesn't really answer that I don't I still don't know what that means, right? It was the bread of presence. It was twelve loaves and this is according to the ceremonial law of God in the Old Testament, twelve loaves of bread arranged in two stacks of six. 
Okay, on the table of the showbread. And the bread was to be replaced weekly on the Sabbath, on Saturday. And we see that in Leviticus chapter 24. The table of the showbread, it was located in the holy place of the tabernacle near Yahweh's presence. So this bread, it appeared before the presence of God, again, according to the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant, and the priests were allowed to eat of this bread as it was being replaced. Not while it was sitting on the showbread table, but as it was being changed with a newly baked warm bread, again, according to the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. Now, while there is a provision for the priest to eat of this bread, there's not a provision for anyone else to eat, yet on the Sabbath we see David and his men do this very thing. And let's just briefly look at 1 Samuel chapter 21. Look there with me. Then David came to Nob to Halimelech the priest. And Halimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Halimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, or the show bread, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now, there's a lot of ceremonial considerations here that are way beyond the scope of this text, but I read this to you because this is what Jesus references to the Pharisees in our passage this morning. And David, as we see in this passage, he's, no, he's under no judgment from the Lord for eating the showbread. He's not struck down for it. David and his men at the time of this passage, they're fleeing persecution from King Saul and they're starving. And they're in need of sustenance. And the Levitical priest gives freely under certain conditions. Okay, so, so the needs of these men, particularly David, are met without actually even violating the ceremonial law that we see in the Old Testament. The Puritan Matthew Henry, he's helpful here. He prioritizes what we call the necessities of nature and moral duties, which moral duties can be considered acts of mercy. Again, we'll address that next week. And we, we see Christ arguing this way. He's arguing this way in our text. But Henry says ceremonial observ- uh, observances must give way before moral duties and particularly the necessities of nature. And that's what we see with David. And that's what we see with the disciples of Jesus, the necessities of nature. And that's what Jesus is getting at with the Pharisees. And that's what makes what his disciples were doing lawful. That's what makes it lawful. Now, I'm aware that a lot of this may seem tedious to us, right? You might, you might feel like you've come to a seminary class this morning, right? And, and even perhaps working through some of the background of this may feel tedious, but it's still important. 
It's important because we should look at the heart posture of the Pharisees and, and, and perhaps not judge too quickly because we can find our own heart posture as it re- relates to the Sabbath. Um, uh, we, we can see similarities between us and the Pharisees. Generally speaking, we think, of Sabbath, we think that Sabbath observance looks like what the Pharisees taught. That's what we think oftentimes Sabbath observance looks like. And so because of that, we break the Sabbath regularly. On one hand, we view it legalistically or view view it strictly ceremonially, and then we just brush it off by saying that's been abolished by Jesus. Okay, that's been abolished by Jesus, and that's antinomianism. It's anti-law. On the other hand, we legalistically hold to it. And because we legalistically hold to it and observe it, and perhaps judge others who don't observe it like we do, we miss the whole point of it, right? And instead of feeling freedom on this day, which we should, we put ourselves under the crushing weight of keeping it. Right? Or we observe it by keeping a tally on all the things that we can't do or that we shouldn't do, just like the Pharisees do. And, and like the Pharisees, again, we may judge those who don't hold it according to specific legalistic ways in which we deem they should. And we need to reject both errors, both ditches of saying it's been abolished, it's not relevant, it's not binding, and we need to avoid the ditch of applying it legalistically and arbitrarily in our lives. We want to avoid both ditches. And instead, we need to see this passage, and we need to see the kindness of Jesus in that, in this passage, he gives us the way of repentance. Look again at these last two verses with me. And he, Jesus, said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. You can jot this down. The Sabbath, it's a delight when we submit to Christ who's Lord over it. The Sabbath is a delight when we submit to Christ who's the Lord over it. Chiefly for us, it's a delight because it's remembrance for us. It's remembrance for us that, that observe the Sabbath on the Lord's Day that Jesus is risen. He's risen bodily and eternally. He has resurrected from the grave. That means that every Lord's Day is a resurrection Sunday. Culturally speaking, kids, that means every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday. Right? In, 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 in our lives, we are so quick to forget and, 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 and not feel the... The, the impact and the rev- relevance for our lives of having a Savior who's no longer in the grave and our union with Him knowing that one, way, one day we will bodily resurrect from the dead just as our Savior has. We come and we remember that each and every Lord's Day. Just the fact that we're observing the Sabbath on the Lord's Day declares the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is good. This is good. Right? Christ... In our text, who has authority over the Sabbath, he clarifies it. He clarifies it for us, and and he brings it back to its original intent. He pushes back in our text all these burdensome ways in which it was observed and abused, and he does that while not abolishing it. He does that while not abolishing it, which is how we go with it, typically. We go nuclear with it, and we just say, oh, that's been abolished. 
But Christ clarifies it and puts it in its proper place, this creation mandate that's on Sunday because of the resurrection of Christ. And, he, 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 and, he, and we see this Christian Sabbath here is full of gospel. We see it full of grace. And this rhythm of rest, it's, it's not only good for our physical bodies, but in resting we're reminded spiritually that we eternally rest in Jesus Christ, who's the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made to do us good. Again, it's not, it wasn't created um, so that we, again, legalistically fall underneath the weight of it. It was made for us, for our physical well-being and our spiritual well-being. One commentator says it like this, the extremes of legalism and then antinomianism, right, anti-law, are avoided. In this passage, the law is not here regarded as an autonomous revelation, which in legalism tends to replace the person of God. Nor is Jesus a free agent who abrogates the Sabbath or the moral order of the revealed will of God as an antinomianism. Rather, the sayings of verses 27 and 28 teach us that the righteous purpose of God as manifested in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, can be recovered and fulfilled only in And this is the beauty of it, only in relation to Jesus, who is its Lord. So, Deer Park Fellowship, we have to be a church that takes the fourth commandment as binding. And and picture this as you do with me for a moment. One day in seven, where you, you press pause and you rest in this chaotic, burnout paced world. One day of freedom in an otherwise enslaving world. One day without endless notifications and negative news. One day in seven where you can say, that can wait until tomorrow. And as you rest, as you do that, you confess that you're not God. The very act of resting is a confession of your creatureliness. Right? Your confession that you aren't the Savior. Right? You're not limitless. In your rest, you declare that you're dependent. Right? You're dependent upon your Maker. And as you rest from the thorns and thistles of this life, you free yourself up to be nurtured spiritually, to recover, if you will, recover spiritually as you gather with your church family. So why would we ever forsake this? Why would we ever neglect it or put it on the back burner? Again, there's certainly extenuating circumstances that come up in our lives, but why would we regularly forsake this rest, this gift from God? There's an author named uh, Christopher Ash wrote a book called Zeal Without Burnout, which is an excellent book. I commend it to you if you're looking for a good book to read. But he recounts a... Um, uh, an, an article that he read in a Cambridge newspaper in which uh, there was this psychiatrist, and I don't know if the psychiatrist was a Christian or not, but he, he talked, generally speaking, about its practice, and particularly with people who were depressed and anxious and burned out. And he muses in this article that he wrote in this Cambridge newspaper, he said, I can't help but to think that perhaps what I'm prescribing, because he, he prescribes what uh, is called, he prescribes mandatory rest, 
And he said, and I can't help but to think in my prescription of mandatory rest that what I'm prescribing is retroactive Sabbaths. Retroactive Sabbaths. And so the God who's created all things, he's created this world, he's created how things should function, he knows better than us. And it would do us good, both body and soul, to submit to the way in which he designed us and in the way in which he has ordered this world. And so why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time together. And God, we thank you for the gift of a Sabbath, God. That spiritually speaking, God, Christ is our Sabbath, he's our spiritual rest, and he is that without abolishing our need to rest one day every seven days. God, physically from our labors, God, so that we give ourselves this opportunity to recover spiritually, Lord. So thank you for this gift. Help us to avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace each and every Lord's Day, the preaching of your word, prayer, and sacrament. And help us as we gather, Lord, to remember that this is an acknowledgement of our trust in you and our trust in your ways, God, that feels rub against what we think is best for us or what we think we need to do. So grant us humility. Grant us humility. And we love you and praise you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is-